First of all, at 21 years old, I became my father. You seem to be someone who is not particularly risk averse. AT&T asked me to appear in a commercial for them. They ran it in 92 through the Summer Olympics that were the most watched Summer Olympics ever. All of a sudden we became a national brand. I'm Ruth Umo, leadership editor and host of Executive Exchange at Fortune. And today I'm joined by Jim McCann. You might recognize the CEO from the prominent 1-800-Flower commercials. Well, today, he oversees a sprawling $3 billion multi-platform e-commerce site that sells much more than just flowers. Welcome, Jim. Thank you so much for joining Fortune Executive Exchange. We're delighted to have you. A lot to dig into, uh, into a very prestigious company. I want to start from the very beginning. The fact that the company is named 1-800-Flowers, a relic from a time when people actually use their phones to call people and not just scroll through TikTok and other social media platforms. So let's start from the very beginning. How did you come up with this concept for a flower business, which has since expanded far beyond just flowers? Well, yes, far beyond, but not just, and I'll come back to that. It, my, my path in this business is uh, simple. I, uh, I've only had two career kind of jobs. You know, I did a lot of things, you know, construction, working for my father's family business as a kid and all that kind of stuff. But my first career kind of job was in the social services. I ran a home for boys here in, in New York City, out in Queens. Discovered I really liked that work and I did, it for, did it for a while. But then what I discovered too is, and you work for the not, in the not-for-profit social services field, you don't get paid very much money. Life decisions change how you think about things and what your flexibility is. So my wife and I married young, started a family young, and it was becoming more and more difficult to provide for them the way we wanted to, just in the social services field. So I was always doing things on the side. Being an Irish Catholic kid from South Queens, I had a genetic requirement to attend bar. And I was doing that Friday and Saturday nights uh, to supplement my income here in Manhattan on the Upper East Side. I had a customer owned a flower shop across the street. And he'd stay late, we'd chat uh, late on Saturday nights and told me he's gonna be selling the flower shop. I said, you are? He says, yeah, I got this new business idea. So I asked him, I said, well, do you mind if I come work a couple of Saturday afternoons before I come into the bar uh, in your flower shop? He goes, no, I don't mind, but why would you want to do that? I said, well, maybe I'm the buyer. And I just sold a, a, a building I had in Brooklyn that I bought and fixed up and sold. And I asked this fellow, Nick, I said, how much are you asking for that flower shop? And he said, $10,000. I had a profit in that building of $10,000. I thought this is kismet. <laughs> and uh, so I went and worked there a few Saturdays, figured out retail, I think I could figure this out. Uh, nice time to be involved in people's lives. So I wound up buying that flower shop and that was how I started in the business. But I, I went into the business with not just to be a florist, which of course I became, but to build the business. So I went in, I kept my full-time job for a good number of years so I could provide for the basics and that everything else I did in the flower business, I could throw right back into it. So six months after I bought the first shop, I opened the second shop. And I did that every six months for 10 years until it was every three months. Yeah. How long did you balance working uh, as a social worker with working at the flower shop once you'd purchased it? An embarrassing long time. Yeah. Why is that? Well, I think two things. One is uh, it gave me the flexibility with no capital of trying to grow a business because I didn't have to take my, any salary out or any money out so I can just throw everything back in. And the second thing is conservative. I probably did it way too long. Uh, I should have probably thrown all my energies into the flower business sooner, but 
conservative nature. I did it for a long time. I did it for about eight years. We're definitely going to circle back around and dig into the topic of innovation. Uh, I want to talk about your background a bit. You attended John Jay College of Criminal Justice in Manhattan with a bachelor's degree in psychology. As you already attested to, you worked as a social worker. Are there any skills that are transferable from that work, from your education that you use, let's say in leadership strategy, for instance, or understanding the consumer? Yeah, I'd say definitely, Ruth. Uh, those those uh, years for me working at St. John's Home for Boys, I started as a living counselor in a group home. So I'd come to work at four in the afternoon, work until midnight, and then be the person responsible overnight. I had my own room there in the, in the group home. We had 10 boys, myself, and a staff. But what I learned in those first few years when I was a live-in counselor has changed my life forever. Uh, first of all, at 21 years old, I became my father. <laughs> all the things that he used to say that I thought were stupid, I'm now saying. The second group home I worked in, uh, I ran and lived in, was only 12 blocks from where I grew up and my family still lived, but it was a million miles away. It was a million miles away because those 10 boys did not see the world that I, the way I saw it. I thought anything was possible, and they did not. And if you went to 100 years of psychotherapy, you'll learn more about yourself living with 10 teenage boys who were tough kids who came from very tough circumstances. If you're inconsistent in any way, they're going to point it out to you in a hurry. I learned a lot, yes, and I learned a lot about myself even more. But in terms of the lessons I've carried from that those days, I think about it often. At first, I made the mistake of trying to develop the relationship with the group. You don't have relationships with groups. You have relationships with individuals. And once I learned that, or it was taught to me, uh, that you gotta find a way to establish a relationship with each guy and let them know that you really care. And yep, you gotta be the rule keeper because they want rules too. Even though they wanna break them, they still want the rules. What was the name of that first flower shop? It was called Flora Plenty. And where is it now? Uh, that first flower shop is gone. We had it for a long time. And what happened was, Ruth, 10 years in, I realized <laughs> I have all these flower shops and there's no economy of scale here whatsoever. In fact, there's probably some diseconomies. And so I thought there's got to be a, a better way. And so back then, you talked about the uh, dark ages <laughs> when people had telephones and 800 numbers mattered because uh, calling people was very expensive. Uh, so we had toll-free numbers, 800 numbers. The idea was uh, everyone was trying to get you to remember their phone number. And I remember Sheridan Hotels in particular uh, wanted you to remember 800-325-3535. Apparently some people remember it. But they spent a fortune on commercials with kick lines and dances and singers trying to get you to remember their reservation number. And I thought, geez, if you could just dial it on the phone, it would be an easy way to get people to remember it. And I went searching, and a company had that number, but it was it failed. And so uh, I bought the company, what was left of the company, to get that number, and I rebranded our company, uh, 800 Flowers, which people thought was a bit silly. Yeah. <laughs> well, you seem to be someone who is not particularly risk-averse, and I say that because, perhaps I'm being presumptuous, you might push back <laughs> on that, but I say that, at least from the outset, because you say you married young, you have kids young, some guy in a bar comes to you late at night, says, hey, I've got something to sell you. <laughs> you just sold a property in Brooklyn, $10,000. I'm assuming you went back to your wife and said, hey, I'm gonna invest $10,000 into this business. And what she was did the, the eye roll. <laughs> <laughs> 
what was her reaction and what was your thought process buying that first flower shop? Were you thinking expansion at the time? Yes, I went in thinking expansion. So I hired a buddy of mine to run that shop. By accident, I made a good judgment there that I was going to try and build a chain, not just one shop. In terms of my wife, she's always been supportive. Uh, I lucked out in the lottery there, which is probably why we just celebrated our 50th anniversary. Congratulations. Thank you. I don't think I'm a risk taker, but in business, clearly, you're in the risk taking business every day. Walk us through how you made your first million. Well, I don't know. <laughs> uh, I don't know when that happened because wealth is generated mostly by creating value. Somewhere in that first 10 year period, I accumulated uh, a bunch of these stores and they were profitable. And when I bought the company that had the 800 number in it, uh, I had to muster together all the money. And when I was able to put up $2 million to, uh, as, to buy the company, that's when I realized I had more than a million dollars. Yeah. Was there a moment or perhaps movements where you said, okay, this was a period that was really catalytic toward the growth of the business, towards its quote unquote national dominance? Bad news, good news. Bad news is when I bought this company, I didn't know enough about uh, how the world worked. I'm a smart aleck kid from Queens. I think I figure things out, so I don't want to waste money on lawyers and accountants and, uh, and bankers and do this due diligence thing. I'll do negligence. And uh, so I wound up buying the company and sign for all of its responsibilities personally. Not a smart move because it turned out there was another $7 million in debt that existed that nobody knew about because there were no employees left in the company at that point. And that was a very deep hole. So that was very bad news, crushing. Uh, but the good side of that was if I was going to dig out of this hole, we had to take chances and we had to do things creatively. So 86, I bought that company, changed the name of our company, including the stores to 800 Flowers. Had to sell the stores because I needed capital and I didn't know how else to get it. So I became a franchisor then when we sold our stores off to franchisees, who, by the way, were much better operators anyway on a one-store or two-store basis than we were trying to operate 40 of them. And AT&T asked me to appear in a commercial for them. And I did, and it was supposed to run for a week. And they called me back and said uh, that the spot that I did for them uh, was the best tested spot they had in years. Would I mind if they ran the spot more? So it was free advertising for 1-800-Flowers. And uh, so they ran it, and they ran it in 92, I guess it was, through the Summer Olympics that were the most watched Summer Olympics ever, and it ran three times a night during the Olympics. So it was this huge good fortune and branding event for us at 1-800-Flowers. All of a sudden, we became a national brand. We didn't spend any money to do that. So it, it sensitized me and my younger brother, Chris, who had now just joined me in business after he graduated from uh, college. And we realized that if we could become a national brand, not knowing anything, uh, not being particularly smart, uh, but being dogged and determined, then someone could replace us with the next technology. So it sort of changed, rooted in our DNA, the idea that innovation can really matter. And if we didn't stay on our game, someone else was going to grab the next innovation and push us aside. I want to go back to your company's inception. You start with one brick and mortar store on First Avenue. How soon after did you expand to other brick and mortar stores and by the time, let's say, you got the 1-800 number, how many did you have in total? 
Well, we opened up on April 1st, yeah. took over ownership April 1st of 1976, uh, 25 years before you were born. It was the fall of that year, so six months later we opened a, a second shop to Novo, and that one was in Staten Island. And we just kept opening shops until I think we peaked at 40 of our shops, until we started selling them back to our franchisees. Do you own any brick and mortar stores now? Uh, we do, uh, not a lot, because this is a tough business, and it's better run by individuals. A tough it, business how? Uh, it's got peaks and valleys in it. So there's a reason why flower shops tend to be family businesses. No one else is stupid enough to work that hard besides family members. <laughs> so uh, uh, we have a, a, a company-owned store near our headquarters on Long Island. We have uh, cookie stores. We have some chocolate stores. So. We have a handful of stores around the country. Yeah. Well, I am slightly disappointed you didn't come here with flowers for me, I must say. You know, I'm a little annoyed at that, too. <laughs> well, let me ask you this. Uh, you, we talked about this at the top of this conversation. You still have this name, 1-800-Flowers. Now it's 1-800-Flowers.com. Uh, why not completely rebrand, especially as you enter the digital age? You did talk about innovation. What would you suggest? Oh, that's a good question. I don't know. Maybe just flowers.com. Well, we have flowers.com. You do. We do. And it points to our site. And that's probably the most proximate of what we would consider doing. Uh, but then you have this issue. Very few brands ever get to the level of uh, awareness and recognition that 1-800-flowers.com is at. Do you throw that out? Do you, do you plan to catch lightning in a bottle again? And so uh, it's a question we're asked frequently. And my feeling is, it doesn't mean what it used to. People still call us, and we have thousands of people who answer the phones every day across our different brands. Uh, but when you get to the point where you have a brand that is that well known, why change it just because you do a lot of things now? Are you able to share how you made your first billion dollars? Sure, it's, it's brick on brick. Yeah. Uh, for us, it's continuing to build a portfolio of brands uh, making yourself more convenient so people can act on their thoughtfulness very conveniently. And the mobile device was a, the, uh, the way that really catapulted us. And mobile's completely revolutionized our business. And that's when we crossed the billion dollar threshold. When, hey, if you were in the back of a, an Uber and you just came from a great meeting with Ruth and you wanted to say thanks to her and say, geez, I'd like to send her a, 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 a I want to send her a bouquet. Well, now instead of having to wait till you get the office or open up your laptop and go in through your PC, you have this mobile device in your hand now. You can just go click on her app and with voice interactivity say, I'd like to send Ruth a bouquet of flowers. Here's what I'd like to say on the card and you're done. So uh, that's when mobile really kicked in. That's when we crossed the, the billion dollar threshold. How are you capturing the Gen Z audience, the millennial audience? I'm assuming, and I hope I'm not being presumptuous here, that your current consumer demographic skews older, let's say high, older millennials and above. Uh, how, how are you tapping into the younger generation? I think the same way we have all along, it's about having the right products that people want. Uh, that would be for us important to have the right entry level price points. And that's something we work hard on all the time. It's not easy because you have built in costs that make things more expensive than you'd like them to be. But merchandising is the key. So we, I'll give you for instance, on the flower side of things, I said to a group of our florists that were in from all over the country, and uh, they were in our, in our building, and we have a design center in our, uh, on our ground floor. 
and they were in working on new ideas, and, and it's, it's a great excuse to get people in from around the country and share ideas. And I said, you know, Jerry Rosalia, who is a, a, a fellow who worked for, with us for decades, we bought his flower shop in Brooklyn from him in the early 1980s uh, because he had a bad heart. Then he worked another 40 years with us. So who's the fool there? You know? <laughs> he just passed in his 90s, a wonderful man. But I said, Jerry uh, taught me how to make a floral arrangement that we called the poodle. It looked like a French poodle, and it was made out of flowers. I said, I challenge you to contemporize that and create a, a, a product that looks like a dog, but it doesn't have to be a poodle. And I, I came back in the afternoon, and they had their finalists. They had each worked on it separately to come back. And uh, I had uh, two ladies with me who uh, worked in marketing department. And one of them looked at what became the winner, and she said, oh, that's a doggable. I said, that's it. So we took that arrangement. We branded it the doggable. And uh, it's a huge seller, particularly with young folks. Well, I also must say it's very Instagrammable. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> uh, so we, we talked about innovation at the top of this conversation. Was there ever a period you had to adapt when you thought you wouldn't make it or where there was you know, new technological innovation, massive disruption to your business? Lots of times. Yeah. And uh, so my brother Chris and I call them the different waves we've gone through. First wave for us was stores. Second wave was the 800 number and changing our company name to a telephone number, which everyone said, can't do that. And what we did learn when we first changed the name, the name of the company that we acquired was, wasn't 1-800-Flowers, it was 800-Flowers. But when we changed the name of the store, stores to 800-Flowers, people didn't get that it was a phone number. So that's, we added the one so they'd get it. So the you know, second wave for us was the 800 number. Third wave was this online world. And we weren't sure what to do with our name. How do, you, how do you do this? Finally, I said, let's just put .com on the end and see what happens. And it stuck. So it became 1-800-Flowers.com. Or a lot of people, as you suggested, a lot of people just call us flowers. But then uh, the internet came along and really changed things. And in 1994, we were on the AOL platform when that was a big deal. We were the first transaction you could do online on AOL. And lots of people came to us just to try it. They wanted to do something online. And they could always think of someone they could send flowers to for a birthday or, uh, or anniversary, all those occasions. And then, so that was the third way. The internet really came along. 1994, I started to say, was uh, uh, when Netscape introduced a browser. 95, they went public and changed, changed how we all behave online. And then uh, in 2008, I don't know if you've read about this, financial crisis started, 08, 9, 10. And that was a tougher time. And we had probably 16, 17 different projects that were going on that were for the future, so they were losing money. And when the financial crisis hit back then, we had to pair that back. But we paired it back to a few that we knew were going to matter no matter what. Uh, one was we had to redo our technology platform so it would serve uh, all these things. And we also knew that social media was the emerging world and that uh, mobile was going to aid and abet this change in social media. So those three projects are technology stack, uh, mobile, and social. We continue to invest in those. And uh, so that was the fourth wave for us. And then the fifth wave is one my brother called uh, conversational commerce. And uh, I, I think that's morphing into, uh, into engagement now. And I think the uh, newsletter, which is called the Celebrations Pulse that we do every Sunday, is indicative of that. 
So we really are in the relationship business. And as such, it's causing us to say, what do we spend our time and our dollars and our technology on to be true to the fact that we want to be in a relationship business and help our customers have more and better relationships? So that's our guiding light in terms of where we spend our capital now. Where does generative AI play a role in that? Well, I think that's the sixth wave Correct. now. I think it changes everything. And we, we could be more excited about it. It's frightening, it's scary, but it's exciting at the same time. What was the thought process behind diversifying beyond flowers? And you've also acquired a number of companies. So what you're, what you're thinking when debating what company to build from the ground up or, or to acquire? Well, I think it's changing, but uh, the, the thought then was, if you, if you imagine the best flower shop experience uh, that you ever had, you know, let's say you're growing up in Maryland and you go to Bethesda and uh, there's a beautiful flower shop downtown. It's big and it's got greeting cards and it's got flowers, of course, and it's got chocolates. And what we did was we just followed our customer down that journey. So we merchandised our store with the other giftable products that we knew they wanted or were using anyway. So it, started with chocolates and uh, cookies as a gift and bakery products and, and uh, plush and balloons and gift baskets, which is, an, you know, what we do on this side of the store is arrange beautiful flowers together. What we do on this side of our store is arrange beautiful gift products, food gifts at all, wine and food and cheese and fruit to make beautiful gift baskets. So it's really a follow the customer journey and saying if we're going to be in this beautiful strip center or this wonderful downtown, just expand the storefront to include all the things they want anyway. Is your demographic primarily men? I'm thinking Valentine's Day, I'm thinking Christmas, although I guess you could get gifts for anyone regardless of gender, but what, is your, what do your demographics look like? You're on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, majority of our customers yeah. are women. Oh, they are. Uh -huh. And she's uh, 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 affluent, uh, urban more than rural. Uh, yes, when it comes to Valentine's Day, it flips. Uh, dramatically higher percentage of men are our customers at Valentine's Day. And, but during the year, during the whole rest of the year, it's uh, women on their behalf or on behalf of the household. I'd say the average age now is probably 42, 43, 44 years old, very affluent households, you know, triple digit average income in the household. When's your busy season? Well, we have a few of them, fortunately. Uh, busiest quarter for us is the fourth calendar quarter, which is our second fiscal quarter, so it's Christmas. Uh, you have Halloween, Thanksgiving, and Christmas all in the fourth calendar quarter. And those are, those are busy times. And our food gifts in particular are very popular. So our Harry and David product, and those are popular year round, but they're sold primarily in the fourth quarter as a gift. You left your company, uh, I believe in 2016, you stepped down. Why is that? Uh, because I was old and senile. <laughs> and because I uh, have a younger brother I mentioned, um, the oldest of five, uh, all of my siblings have been in the business uh, 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 throughout, and uh, Chris, uh, again, 10 years my junior, it was his turn to be a CEO. So I decided to become the executive chairman so I could focus on future stuff and let him do what he was much better at than I, which is running the shop day to day. So I became chairman, he became, I, I stayed chairman, he became the CEO. Unfortunately, he has some health issues and uh, just stepped down this past June. So for, for the time, I'm, uh, I'm trying to fill his shoes a little bit. Well, you join a, a long string of Boomerang CEOs like Bob Iger and Howard Schultz who have returned back to their company as CEOs. It's nice company to be yes. included in. 
I happen to be uh, happen to know both of those fellows and happen to be fans of both of them as well. Are you thinking succession planning at this point? Absolutely, yeah. always. I mean, that's one of our jobs sure. in, uh, in management of any level is to think about who comes next and what are you doing to train them and have a pool of people you can uh, pick from when, the, when that time comes. So yeah, it's foremost on my mind. What stats do you have to share? Uh, how many flowers are you selling every year? What's the most popular flower varietal? What, how many flower varietals do you have in total? Uh, on the flower side of things, it's, uh, it's amazing because having been a florist now for all these years, the variety of product we have gets better every year. Just think roses. When, when I started in this business, it was basically red roses. Once in a while, you'd see a yellow or a white rose. Uh, but they were few and far between. And now there's a couple of hundred different colors of roses, all the different varietals. Some will have great fragrance, some will have a great shelf life. It's, it's amazing, the science of uh, flower propagation. If you saw lilac in New York, it was like a 10-day window. And now you'll, you'll source it from all over, so it's much longer. Or uh, the oldest flower known to man is ranoculus. It's the only flower that seems to have survived the Ice Age. And ranoculus was so rare, I mean, people didn't, never saw one in person. And now we just had a feature on them. We had a whole uh, few-month program where we had a couple of farms around the world growing ranoculus for us and bringing to our customers for three or four months when maybe they saw them once in a lifetime, not too long ago. So how many flowers are you selling every year? From a sales point of view, uh, between flowers and all of our other gifts, which are primarily food gifts and our personalized products, uh, we do couple of billion dollars in sales. Uh, we do 25 million different gift orders a year. Where are you growing all of these varietals? In this part of the world, our flowers come from all over the country. Canada, a little bit Mexico, heavily South America, in particular Colombia and uh, Ecuador. Uh, Colombia, for reasons uh, uh, that uh, become clear when you see that they have the savanna outside of Bogota, which is 7,000 feet of elevation. 360 days a year, great illuminicity, fertile soil, good water flow, uh, and, uh, and uh, a hardworking, uh, available uh, workforce. We put on a big program here to uh, uh, foster more American-sourced uh, product, and we had great success with it until the cannabis industry came along. And it became so much more profitable for our flower growers to convert at least part of their facilities to growing cannabis that it kicked us in the teeth and we took a giant step backwards. Well, you could start selling cannabis as part no, of the gift. <laughs> that you're not going to diversify the One product offerings. Yeah. It's, it's not our The Cannabis Month Club. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, keep it in mind. Uh, what, I, what an idea. <laughs> what an idea. Innovation. It started uh, here. Exactly. Uh, you own a, I, I want to pivot a bit. You acquired a 4% stake in the New York Mets. Why is that? Well, I come from Queens. The... Uh, Owner of the uh, of the Mets, the principal owner at that time, uh, he and his wife became good friends of my wife and I. The opportunity came up. It was a, a kick. We sold a couple of years ago to Stevie Cohen, our, our small interest. But uh, for 10 years, we were involved in 
some of the greatest days is being there with my kids and grandkids at the ballpark. And it's even a better treat now because I don't have to worry about the financial side of it. Exactly. <laughs> well, any plans to invest in another sports team? No plans. No plans at, at this time. <laughs> you launch an app. Uh, you obviously have your website. You still have the 1-800 number uh, that consumers still utilize. How many different streams and platforms can one find you? And just streams of revenue. How many streams of revenue are you generating? Well, uh, it it's, uh, varies from brand to brand. So flowers, Harry and David, uh, uh, Popcorn Factory, uh, Simply Chocolate, all the different gift brands we have, uh, it'll vary. But overall, the vast majority of the business is still on our website. Yes, we have thousands of people interact with our customers on the phone, but that'll be customer service issues more than sales, perhaps. You know, if you send flowers to somebody in the hospital because they had a baby, and then you find out an hour after you place the order that uh, they're not in the hospital anymore and you want to change the address, you tend to want to pick up the phone to make that change. So we still have thousands of people who service our, our calls from around the world every day. The vast majority of our traffic and revenue comes on, on our websites and increasingly our app. Uh, you, you asked before, Ruth, about uh, millennials. Millennials tend to want to do everything on an app, so that we see that growing every month as a, as a percentage of our sales. So what I'm hearing is that your 50-year relationship is rested on technology. <laughs> Put in your thoughts and your sentiments so on paper. So there's a power out of jump out too. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> what goes into your decision making when it comes to acquiring new brands? Perhaps we can, you know, zoom in on Harry and David. Well, uh, in terms of a, a product mix growth, we're trying to follow the customer. What would they like to gift, and should we have that available for them? So it started with flowers and chocolates and uh, greeting cards and uh, stuffed animals and balloons. and we, So we followed them on the gifting journey. And more and more we realized that we shared our customer base with another company, which is called Harry and David, who grows the most unbelievable fruit and have the highest quality product. And we knew we couldn't start that company. We could start a popcorn company, we could start a bakery company, we could start a chocolate company, but you couldn't start a company where they grow all their own food uh, on 5,000 acres in Southwest Oregon. That's not recreatable. So we had an interest in buying that company for a long time. And finally, a private equity owner had it and decided they were gonna sell it. And we got into the mix and uh, finally we were able to buy it. That was eight or nine years ago and it's been terrific. What product offerings are you eyeing next? Any gaps? Yes, uh, in, in two realms, Ruth. The things we'd like to do next, more and more we're seeing that our customers want uh, uniqueness in the product. And frankly, we're saying, if we don't have the product, we don't have to make it. 20 years ago, I might have thought that uh, a company that came out, came out with a nice birthday gift box would be a competitor. I don't think that way anymore. If I'm focused on the customer, then I don't think about who's making it. The other side of the equation is if uh, where we're gonna spend our capital, more and more our capital is gonna be spent on relationship technology helping our customers to have more relationships, to, uh, uh, to invest in those like we're doing with the AI technology, to make it available for you to come and tell the best terrible dad joke ever at Father's Day. There's no revenue in that for us, but when we have tens of thousands of people come and use that technology, some of whom bought a gift from us too, majority did not. And so our guys are going, what are you, we're spending all this money to make this available to people. I said, you have to have trust that if you serve them, they'll remember you. I want to end with uh, some quick questions for you. 
around Robin, if you will, uh, best business advice you've ever received? Best business advice would probably be uh, to not listen to all the people who tell you that your wacky idea can't happen. That listen, listen for good advice, but if you think it can work, keep going because people don't know what they don't know. It's easy to say that in hindsight. It is. It is easy to say it in hindsight, but when you're making decisions now and you think back, what would the advice be from that person on this back then? It helps you to contextualize. And the other thing uh, in terms of leadership was, uh, I don't know if you heard of this guy, uh, Jamie Dimon. He runs yes. a little bank uptown here. <laughs> uh, but he's uh, someone Chris and I are friendly with. And uh, advice he gave me one time, and I, I think about it often, is he said, Jim, you spend way too much of your time evangelizing. I said, what do you mean? He said, you spend too much energy and time trying to get everybody in the organization to get it. He says, they don't all need to get it. He says, they just need to have the faith that you get it, and that if they do their job of moving things from here to here, and everybody does that, it'll roll up into a beautiful, uh, a beautiful uh, noise, a beautiful crescendo. The most important question, what is your favorite flower? Hmm. Well, there's, there's a year-round answer, I guess, and a seasonal answer. Uh, seasonally, a peony, because they're still, with all the things we've done in terms of the science, they're still kind of rare. My wife is the uh, head gardener at home. I'm her, uh, her uh, helper, uh, but we have uh, beautiful peonies, and uh, they're majestic and special. But on a year-round basis, we were talking about roses before. I'm a purist. I bring flowers home. I don't bring, a, oftentimes, a mixed bouquet. I bring a single flower, and I like to work them and see how long I can get them to last, and I like to work the flowers myself, so, but I love a, a, a vase of roses, all one color, and uh, that's a, it gets me excited at home. I now have a hankering for fruit and chocolate all of a sudden. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know why. Who knows? Maybe it's in your future. <laughs>